public service announcement. The Water Joke Podcast is now two-time comedy podcast of the year. Whoop, whoop. Yes, sir. And it's 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 huge, really, for a lot of reasons. I'm super, super duper honored to be that guy. And I'm so grateful to all of you, your friends, family, neighbors, enemies, um, loved ones, hated ones? I don't know. Haters? All of you and your multiple emails. <laughs> Thank you. It, it means a lot that so many people would care enough to want to vote and like even talk about the episode. People tweeting about the episode, tweeting about the win, everybody. I'm, I really appreciate all of you guys. And I'm just going to play the acceptance speech again real quick, just so you can hear it all. Hi, I'm Bio. Getting nominated again for an award because I make people laugh. And they say the justice system is broken. I won the award last year, but each year is different. And I'm honored to be nominated alongside some of the funniest people in the podcast space globally. So uh, cheers to them and may the Comedias pod win. To think there was a time I didn't believe I was funny enough to host this show. And now we're comedy podcast of the year, two years running. I thank God for a lot, including ADHD, because you wouldn't believe how I find most of my episode ideas. This award is for my mom, my still non-existent girlfriend, the team I work with are Jamate, my fans, friends, and family. They say comedy is all about timing. You know what else is about timing? I'll tell you if I win again next year. <laughs> Bye. All right, so we, maybe I'll do another like a bonus episode to just, you know, appreciate the win. But for now, let's get back into the lady and her lord this episode we're talking about the lady <sighs> there's so much there's so much on this whole flora shore piece where do we start from of course the very beginning hiya i'm bio and in case you were wondering you are now listening to the water joke podcast a friendly disclaimer before you proceed continued listening may result in one or more of the following involuntary and unrestrained laughter Learning new things. Uh huh. Enjoyment, being offended, and falling in love. Ah. And most importantly, always remember please don't take everything you hear on here too seriously. They say behind every great man is a great woman. In Lugard's case, it couldn't be truer. Entrepreneur turned children's book author turned journalist turned historian turned imperialist turned big editor turned scandalist turned war hero turned farmer. She lived a life for several people, never abandoned her family, bore the weight of responsibility at a young age, and never backed down from a challenge. Never backed down, never what? Never backed down, never what? You guys, I nearly cried reading Flora's story. It has everything. At the time, Britain became heavily involved in imperial politics, and one woman's articles were the go-to for all the colonial tea. She ran the official late 19th century shade room for the empire. She was mother, even without being a mother. Born in 1852 Ireland, Flora was just a normal girl in a pretty normal family. Her grandfather, Sir Frederick Shaw, was a prominent figure in Irish politics and represented Dublin in the British Parliament. Her father, George Shaw, after considering his position of second son, aka no daddy inheritance, made a career for himself in the army, rising to the rank of general. 
While serving with the British forces in Mauritius, he met and married the love of his life, Marie de Fontaine, the youngest daughter of the last French colonial governor. He has a pretty normal family, by all standards. But Marie de Fontaine had health problems, you see, and they were worsened after having 14 children in quick succession. Yeah, giving birth to a whole first 11 and 3 subs will do that to you. I'm sorry if that came off as rude, but in quick succession? <laughs> pew, 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 pew. Anywho, her third child and second daughter would be called Flora Louise. Flora Louise, sure. Each year from around May to October, the short children lived at the grandfather's estates at Kimmage, near Dublin. During these visits, Grandpappy Shaw instilled in his children a great sense of duty and responsibility expected of such nobility as them. When Flora turned nine, her father was promoted. This came as, you know, it was good, it was good. Big house, access to the soldiers' extensive library as well. Now, Flora was a girl who may have missed many things in life, but an opportunity to improve herself was not one of them. Especially seeing as in true Victorian fashion, she and her sisters only got the barest of education at home from the mother and governess. As the years grew on, her mother's condition grew increasingly worse until she had become an invalid, requiring constant care and who else besides Flora and her older sister, Mimi, to do it? This also meant that the task of maintaining the household and caring for the other 11 children had become their responsibilities. But it was a lot for Flora and soon she fell ill and was sent to France to recover with relatives. She returned to England at the age of 17, now bilingual too. At her age, she became a debutante, an upper-class young woman making her first appearance in fashionable society. If you watch period dramas, you know what that means, you know. Balls, she went to all the balls. However, she could only live that life of fast carriages and late nights for a little while. Because when her older sister, Mimi, got married and left home the year after, Flora was left to shoulder the responsibility of caring for 10 younger siblings as well as nursing her invalid mother. Yeah, she carried the entire family on her back. And, of course, that eventually led to a permanent spinal injury. I'm not joking about the spinal injury. I know the carrying on the back is, is, a, is a euphemism, but yeah. Anyways, it led to a permanent spinal injury which would plague her for the rest of her life. The same year Mimi left her, so did her mother, when she died late in autumn. She had to become a home runner at 18, and along with the fact that her father only provided a fixed allowance, she was continually forced to stretch her resources just to maintain the household. You could say that she, too, had an easy way out. She could fight the suitor, get married, free herself from the shackles of familial responsibility, but that wasn't Flora. Sakpa, sorry, international audience. Her broke state opened her eyes to the fact that she had neighbors who were poorer still. She started to look for ways she could help herself and themselves out of their mutual difficulties. Her solution was to open a co-op which bought and sold goods at greatly reduced prices. It meant more responsibility, but also a bit more cash in hand. Two years after, her father did her the service of getting her help. He hired a maid? Oh, no, he remarried. Ah, that's problematic. Yes, but not for Flora Louise, who could finally do the things she wanted once more, like visit friends and travel Europe. Then her sister Mimi's husband went bankrupt two years later. Flora, of course, wanted to help, so she decided to take up writing for a living and started working on a series of children's stories, the first of which was called Castle Blair, 
And it was a hit. Yep. So much so that it went through eight editions. Now, Flora had practically secured the bag. This was big bank. Or so you think. However, with her lack of experience, she had signed an awful contract, handing over her copyrights for chicken change. (laughs) Things weren't all bad because although she was broke, she was famous and was promptly invited to write for a popular magazine. She set up shop there over the next several years and published a lot of pieces, consistently improving her writing and storytelling skills while making extra money on the side. She couldn't have known, but all this was preparing her for the future. In 1883, she moved to the countryside and quickly became friends with a neighbor who broadened her horizons with the power of networking. She was still a writer, and a neighbor, George Meredith, introduced her to a wider literary circle, including the likes of Robert Louis Stevenson, the author of Treasure Island and Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This is like my multiverse of madness. Six degrees of separation at its finest. Anyhow, this is where the real story starts. In the countryside, she continued writing short stories and also started deeply researching for another project, Planned History of England from Elizabeth I through the reign of Victoria. This was the moment she fell in love with the British Empire and all the potential it had. But she was a wise one. And as with all empires, she knew there would be an inevitable decline, as predicted by historian Edward Gibbon, famous for his theory in relation to the fall of Rome that the Roman Empire succumbed to barbarian invasions in large part due to the gradual loss of civic virtue among its citizens. Deeper down the rabbit hole she went, her paranoia grew to where she wasn't sent. The following is a recorded conversation between Flora and her neighbor George on a gentle morning. George? Yes, love? How often do you think about the Roman Empire? I... I don't think about it at all. That right there is the problem. Her paranoia was further validated when she considered that the slums, which were a result of the Industrial Revolution, might be the early signs of the decline. And then she came to a conclusion, one that had ramifications that I suppose you could say sent ripples through time. Shaw concluded that the only solution was to continue imperial expansion, which would not just renew the imperial economy, but also relieve congestion at home by fostering emigration. You know, all of you poor people can go to all these other countries now. Huh? Shoot, you don't have to stay here. Shoot, shoot, off. The only way to ensure Britain stayed on top was to find others and put them under first. Interesting theory. She became so obsessed with imperialism that all her other interests, history, social reform, all of that fell into the background. She read everything she could to learn as much about the colonies as she could. After a period of consumption, she was eager to see these colonies for herself. So she traveled first with a few friends to Gibraltar. Fun fact, it is still a British colony till this day. Of course, it's not like she was suddenly a bola. Trip would have stretched her finances much too far. So to help, George Meredith, her neighbor, introduced her to the editor of the Paul Mall Gazette. Like I said on the History of OK episode, if you see Gazette in the name of the newspaper, you just know it was huge. This connection for Flora gave her the opportunity to submit freelance articles for publication, get paid, and travel. If most people had the same opportunity, even today, they'd start a travel blog, but not Flora Louise. In Gibraltar, she chased the story of Zebeher, Zebeher, Zeber, Zeber, Zebeher Pasha, 
a Sudanese political figure and slave trader who had been imprisoned in Gibraltar by the British after the death of General Charles George Gordon. The name is kind of a mouthful. After extensive interviews with him, she wrote, and in her articles, she sympathized with him and his cause. All the man wanted was a trial to determine his status. Is he innocent? Is he guilty? Just arrest him and keep him. She was published, and from the first article, she had the British public hooked. Her subsequent articles featured a fuller account of Zebeher's life. I really hope I'm pronouncing his name right. Before the last segment was published, he was released and sent to Cairo, greatly due to her intervention. With that, Shaw had found her spark and taken her first step to becoming the powerhouse she was destined to be. From Gibraltar to Morocco, she absorbed much of their politics and histories, noting the need for reforms and changes. If the empire was to flourish, some people needed to go. Within a few months of her Moroccan travels, rumors of the Sultan's death surfaced. The British public needed the tea, and who better to brew it, you know? Thanks to her expert reporting, she gained infamy, which caused the other newspapers to take an interest in her services. Meanwhile, the editorial board of the Paul Mall Gazette asked her to widen her scope to book reviews and regular articles. Shaw had broken through. She returned to England a year later to see family, before setting out on the next adventure, Egypt. Prior to leaving, the editor of the Manchester Guardian commissioned her to write regular pieces for his audience as well. So when she arrived Egypt, she pretty much had two of the most influential British newspapers as bragging rights. Furthermore, having practically saved the life of Zebeher Pasha, she gained access to people in government and official circles too. Life was good in Egypt, but Shaw thought it could be better. It's good, but it can be better. This was when she met and befriended Moberly Bell the local correspondent for the Times, who was more than happy to place his extensive network of sources at her disposal. He's one of those meetings that is like a canon event. So don't know it that time, but like, it can change the rest of your life. Of course, she used them to the max, learning all she could about the state of Egypt in such a short time. And what she learned, her readers back at home learned as well. Already fluent in French and knowledgeable in Italian and Spanish, she decided, why not Arabic too? Such a boss. But she didn't just do it so she could flex. It allowed her to conduct better interviews and better research, all for the goal of her colonialist articles. Months after, she returned to England and started busting out articles and reviews for her two employers. She talked about things other than colonial politics, but that was her niche. And her popularity soared with it, all the way up to the colonial office. Recognition? Connections? You name it. Riches? No. You said I should name it. It's a thing people say. So great had her recognition become that the Manchester Guardian sent her specifically to cover the Brussels Anti-Slavery Conference in 1889. Big win for feminism, by the way. Victorian women rarely got this kind of buzz. After the conference, she returned home, overworked and in need of a rest. Her spinal problems didn't help matters. But worse off, her pockets had gotten a little tighter when she agreed to pay her younger sister, Alice's, art school tuition. And then Mimi and her children moved in with Flora as well. And then her old friend fell gravely ill. It was a lot. He came back home to recuperate. However, he never did. He died a few months later. So much was going on in her life with nobody to share the burden. But she powered through, distracting herself with work. You go, girl! 
The following year, Mobali Bell got a promotion and left Egypt to take over as assistant manager of the Times. But it wasn't exactly the best job in the world. Flora, this job, it looked like a promotion, but really, I think nobody wanted it. The paper's reputation is in the dumps. Where do we even go from here? Sweet, sweet Belle, give the people what they want. It's a colonial age, so let them read that and don't stop. He took her advice, but not only that, as he asked her to join the regular staff of the Times. Yes, <clears throat> I mean, I'll think about it. Remember, Flora was kind of broke, and this meant more money, more prestige, and more opportunities to spread the gospel of empire. But life was taking its toll on her. Juggling so many jobs along with her illness forced her to quit the Manchester Guardian gig. She needed a vacation, doctor's orders, but she couldn't afford one, like many adults today. <sighs> I get you, girl. Mobile Bell decided to invest in his star reporter and offered her a working holiday to South Africa as a special correspondent so she could gain first-hand experience. Psh, what? I mean, if you insist, who am I to say no? Really? She accepted and in April 1892 left for Cape Town, alone. By alone, I mean no maid or companion. She wasn't that big yet. In South Africa, she traveled wide, immersing herself in all there was to their politics. She believed that for the colony to work, there had to be cooperation between the British immigrants and the Boers, descendants of Dutch settlers decades prior. All her advocacy got her into the good graces of the then Prime Minister Cecil Rhodes. Her published letters from South Africa were a hit with the Times readers, so much so that Bell asked her to continue the good work as special correspondent in another country, Australia. It's about to get real! She left behind a network of local contacts in Cape Town to keep her updated on everything. It was a routine everywhere she visited. In Australia, she got some bad news from home. Her father had died. It was hard news to hear, but she'd have to deal with it whenever she got back home. From Australia to Canada and then back to England, everywhere she went, she spilled the tea. For my old audience, spilling the tea means she gave just, you know, to our readers, I know. When she returned from her travels, Bell quickly saw that his investments had paid off. Her colonial articles had found new lifeblood. The editors were pleased and the audience was hooked. Pertaining to the loss of her father, none of her siblings had a good relationship with her stepmother. So Flora decided to support her sisters financially so they could be independent. For the next eight years, she shared her home with three of her younger sisters, Alice, Marie, and Lulu, all while still occasionally supporting her other sisters, Mimi, Thomasina, and their children. <sighs> Damn, you would think she was the firstborn. With the heavier strain on her purse, she asked the Times for a raise, which was granted, on the condition that she stopped working for other papers. In addition to her raise, she was promoted to colonial editor, a job title I'm sure no longer exists. At this point, she had the power to do and undo. She controlled the flow of some information, which even political figures used to make decisions about matters of imperial policy. But the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Remember her South African travels and Prime Minister Rhodes? Well, they were trying to gain full rights over the land, as opposed to the coexistence that, you know, it sounded like they were going for initially. And Shaw was in support, as seen in the article she published. In December 1895, L.S. Jameson, a close friend of Rhodes, had grown tired of waiting for the British to plan an uprising against the Boers. 
and decided to go haywire. That act will come to be known as the Jameson Raid, and it nearly ruined everything, for sure. Her career she'd built, a loyal audience, and her reputation. Yeah, Iman's actions nearly messed everything up for a woman. Like we've never heard that before. When news of the raid reached her in London, Shaw acted quick to make it seem like the raid was an accident. She printed a forged telegram sent to her by contact in Johannesburg, which made it seem as if Jameson and his invaders had been invited into the Transvaal to protect revolting British settlers. But when the full details about the raid became known, both Shaw's reputation and that of the Times were in jeopardy. Because she had printed the forged telegram, which was used in good faith to justify the raid, and had been in close contact with Rhodes and Joseph Chamberlain, the British colonial secretary, certain connections were looking connecting, and it only made things look worse for her, like she was the middleman in a colonial office plot to manufacture an international incident allowing for a full-scale British invasion. And worse off, she was high up on the Times chain of staff. The newspaper's reputation was once again in jeopardy. An investigative committee was set up and Shaw was called in twice to testify. Each time she did her best to state she acted independently, so as not to implicate the Times. In the end, the committee had no choice but to accept that her correspondence was nothing more than her just doing her job. Her nerves of steel and cool demeanor paid off. In time, her damaged reputation was restored and she returned to the one thing in her life that could relax her, work. Over the next few years, she accomplished a lot and reported on the biggest colonial stories. But as the years dragged on, it seemed she was less and less happy in her private life and at her job at the Times. She did almost ruin the newspaper after all. Her health had also gotten worse. So at the age of 48, in early September 1900, she resigned from the permanent staff of the Times at the behest of her doctors. It was like a mini-retirement because it didn't last very long. But in the short while it was in effect, she had many visitors at her country home, one of which was a dashing military man in his early 40s. Young chap goes by the name of Sir Frederick Ligard. She'd first met him a few years prior in 1893 when she reviewed one of his books for the Times. During that meeting, they had this conversation. I lost my mother when I was very young, at the age of five, and it left her... Oh, me too. I lost my mum when I was young. Really? Yes, I I think I was 18. Well, that's not very young. We both also really loved the British colony. Like nothing else. Hmm. Frederick? Yes, Lady Shaw? <sighs> Please, it's Flora. How often do you think about the Roman Empire every day. Finding that they had so much in common, the two kept correspondence over the next few years. And in 1901, Frederick asked Shaw to marry him. And she said yes. After announcing their engagement, Flora traveled to South Africa, wanting more first-hand knowledge of the events happening. She couldn't sit at home doing nothing. A war had broken out with atrocities on both sides. On this travel, she went with a maid, courtesy of Frederick Lugard, her future husband. She was also commissioned as a special correspondent for the Times. When the streets found out Flora was back, best believed the British readers were overjoyed. Shaw returned to England in March 1902 to begin preparing for her wedding. 
Within a few months, she set sail for Madeira in order to wait Lugard's arrival. They were married on June 11th and after a brief honeymoon, set out for Nigeria, where Flora spent most of her time reading and entertaining. Shortly after her arrival at her husband's post, Shaw contracted a severe case of malaria and was forced to return to England by the end of the year. Although she periodically considered rejoining Lugard in Africa, her health never improved enough to make that possible. Instead, she busied herself with her first social season as Lady Lugard and began writing a history of Nigeria from antiquity through the period of British administration, which she published in 1905. It was hailed by critics as the definitive work on British policy in Nigeria. Her husband returned to England on leave in May 1905. And, you know, while it was nice that he would be at work from time to time, it wasn't exactly nice that he would be away so long. So Flora tried to use her connections to get him more leave. But maybe she was a bit unreasonable. I propose that Frederick be given six months of leave for each six-month period he spends in Nigeria. However, the new guy in charge of the colonial office was Ibadbele and said no. Frederick decided to retire shortly after because he'd rather be jobless and with his wife than the other way around. <sighs> Romance. But when Hong Kong came calling, he went, this time with Shaw. In early 1912, when the colonial office asked Lugard to return to Africa to oversee the amalgamation of Nigeria, he only accepted on the condition that he got more leave time. When World War I broke out, Shaw championed the campaign to evacuate Belgian refugees. As a founding member of the War Refugee Committee, she was involved in all stages of planning the evacuation, including fundraising, publicity, and the arrangements of transportation and accommodation. She did a lot during and even after the war. As a result, she was created a dame of the British Empire in 1918. She spent the years after with other pleasures, writing articles for the Manchester Guardian, literary reviews for the Times, and helping her husband with his book. But her main thing was agriculture. When the war broke out, so many wars, farming was considered an act of patriotism because like, where would they find food? She quickly became an accomplished farmer and started a hamper trade in 1921 to sell and deliver her produce. But there wasn't that much profit. She suffered a heart attack in 1927, which left her bedridden for most of a year. She made a brief recovery when her husband became a baron in 1928. But a few weeks later, she relapsed and died peacefully in her sleep. She did a lot of amazing things, so it's a tragedy that her life is only seen through the lens of men who surrounded her. But it's what was common with women from the Victorian era. She was convinced that her own life was unworthy of being recorded. So she spent her final days working on her husband's biography instead. <sighs> Flora Shaw, the woman that you were. And that brings us to the end of the Lady and Her Lord mini What a Joke series. I do hope that, you know, every Nigerian out there and non-Nigerian knows a little bit more about these two people who played such a huge role in the history of my country. Now that said, do enjoy the rest of your public holiday. This episode has gone on for much longer than I expected and I know some fans are very happy. So, yes, give it to us longer. Yeah, this is as long as it's going to get though. So, enjoy your holidays and see me next week for a very unserious episode. Actually, no, it's a very, very serious episode. And it focuses on one of the most important things plaguing us in this day and age. It's also kind of a contradiction. 
No, it's not even. It's kind of a contradiction to this episode. But you see, you see, you see, you see, you'll all see. Another Monday, another joke. But you made it through and didn't die of laughter. We thank God. Our solemn mission is to share this episode with everyone. Friends, family, strangers on the internet, that guy that's toasting you, your lecturer, your boss, heck, your unborn child. Share the funny. Make sure to follow the podcast on our socials at Pod and follow me at Udolibayo. Tweet about it, post screenshots of your favorite timestamps and moments. Tag me and I will respond. I'm not popular enough to air you yet. <laughs> The Joker community on WhatsApp is always looking for new family members. Join to get first-hand info about a podcast you love so much at the link in the description. What a joke. You're really calming this stuff up. Yeah.